You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. In this podcast, Future Net Zero News Editor Johnny Bairstow speaks with Simon Owsbury, Managing Director of Energize, as they discuss sustainable processes, scope-free, and the energy impact of everyday decisions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this Counting Carbon podcast with Future Net Zero and Energize. Uh, I'll be talking to Simon Alsbury again uh, for the second time. He's the Managing Director of Energize. And last time he uh, talked us through in his podcast about how to get started on your net zero journey. Today, we'll be talking about the impact upstream. Um, so, Simon, first of all, could you introduce everyone to uh, scope three and what that means? Because we talked a lot about scope one and two last time, uh, and obviously scope three is the remaining piece of the puzzle. Yeah, so thanks, Johnny, um, and um, nice to be here again. So scope three is the impacts of, uh, of all of the decisions that we that we make in, in simplistic terms and, and the activities that come from that. We mentioned about scope one and two before, which are those kind of that, those direct emissions and then the purchased energy. And then the the kind of technical term behind scope three is our is our indirect emissions. So thing, uh, emissions that occur elsewhere but because of us. And um, in terms of what we're talking about in terms of the upstream element, we're talking in this about the things we buy. So that be a product or a service or a, um, something that we kind of bigger purchases of capital goods of some form. The activities required to deliver fuel or energy to us. So how does kind of the, the impacts of getting electricity to our buildings, for example. Uh, any transportation or distribution, so like the logistics, so kind of on a domestic level, the UPS or Amazon delivery or, uh, would be the equivalent. The waste uh, that we generate in our operations, and that includes water from a point of view of kind of the, the structure of it, business travel, the employee commuting, and then anything that kind of there's a technical aspect for leased assets in terms of uh, the structure of it, but that wouldn't be kind of um, immediately relevant to, uh, relevant to everyone, but it would be an aspect that needs to be considered for some. And you me- you mentioned uh, purchasing there at the beginning. Um, how do we track the carbon impact of the things we buy? Because that seems like it could be quite difficult and opaque. Um, if you change energy supplier to renewable energy, most people know that they're going to be cutting their impacts there. But how do you do that on uh, the, the goods and services that you're paying for? So there's it's kind of three levels of detail you can go into. Um, uh, is the best way to kind of summarize it. And you kind of often need to do them in a kind of hierarchical level for most organizations. So but the, the gold standard answer that you'd like to end up as a destination, which is where all these carbon label pieces come from, is some form of life cycle analysis. Uh, so what that's doing is basically looking at the inputs and outputs of a process, be it a linear one that goes from kind of cradle to, to grave for the end of the use of that um, life. And that cradle to grave phrase I've used is a, is a kind of industry term as equivalents for cradle to gate and cradle to customer. Um, you'll sometimes find it cyclical for something where the material gets reused and it's, uh, but that life cycle analysis is, is almost the kind of the gold standard piece, but it's not necessarily hugely accessible to everyone. So if I just kind of outline the kind of, I guess the three options people have got there and one is relatively easy because you can kind of just do it off expenditure data uh, and then you can kind of always go down to that gold standard. So in, in essence, you've got three ways in which you can, you can, get a handle on the carbon impact of uh, footprint of the uh, of things you buy. And this applies irrelevant to whether it's a, a goods or services. You can effectively use a, a sector level input output model. So what this is effectively saying is uh, if I buy a certain amount of services from a certain sector, 
there are data sets out there that basically allow you to identify the carbon intensity of, of that activity because it basically knows that that company operates in that sector. And that's available on kind of for carbon factors by sector in terms of it, just a very high level or there are increasingly different activities going on where you start drilling that down to a bit more detail where there are a few organizations exploring how you can use the open banking protocol and link that data in um, and basically put a carbon footprint of a transaction against it. So effectively, I spend this many pounds in on this type of goods or services. So that gives me a very high level carbon footprint. But it's not necessarily representative of the true carbon footprint of the actual thing you've got. It's just allows you to get an understanding of what the impact of different categories of expenditure would be relative to each other. Uh, so you can kind of understand where your priority might want you want to be in your supply chain. And I think also allows you to understand the relative importance of your purchasing of goods and materials over and above any other aspect of your carbon footprint, be that that scope one, two, or any of the 15 categories of scope three um, in terms of the, the greenhouse gas protocols categories. So you, you then kind of draw down to that second option, which is that you get to what we would call proportional allocation. So you engage with your supplier. The supplier will inform you of what the carbon footprint they would allocate to it is. And that's done either again at a high level basis of effectively saying, here's our carbon footprint as an organization. You are you as a customer represent X percent of our turnover. So you should take X percent of our footprint or um, they might have more detailed activity data that will allow them to be more precise in that. Uh, and you might find that, for example, in uh, sectors like manufacturing and construction, where um, one material will be considerably different to another um, in terms of it. And that's where you can start evolving into that life cycle analysis approach that uh, I was talking about, which is effectively where you'd be mapping out process map of the journey that something would go through and you'd map the inputs and outputs to that process and, and attach a carbon footprint to each of them and then identify what the impact of that is. And that gold standard answer there is effectively what's, if you're picking up a, the product that has a carbon footprint figure on it that's that's what's been done in that case is that they've calculated what for every bag of crisps uh t-shirt whoever it may be uh whatever it is you may be purchasing that you can get to a point where you can allocate a specific figure to that so you start from an input output approach you try and move down towards one where you've got much closer to real data from a proportional allocation and if you can get there unfortunately it still costs quite a bit of money to do but if you can get there the life cycle analysis is, is the best answer in time as an industry i'm sure over time will evolve to uh, much better data sets around that life cycle analysis which will make this more accessible to everyone but there's a lot of work required there and there's a lot of innovation uh, i think left in the industry still to to, to make that smarter and, and quicker and more cost effective for everyone talking of those improvements um and kind of the, the gaps that there might be. How do you overcome limitations in terms of data? Because any analysis is going to rely on the data, isn't it? So there, there must be limitations where sometimes it's just not there. Absolutely. Um, I think the fundamental challenge for, for many organizations is you kind of have to have a traceability structure behind what you're doing to make sure you've got the data in the first place. There can be a material difference in terms of the quality of data as to whether you're mapping through the journey of a supply chain about where that comes from, because if it's predominantly overseas and you're getting it from a um, a non-OECD country, for example, then you, you may well find the data quality is much harder to, to collect. Um, I mean, it, it's not always defined by that, to be honest. It can be just be down to who the supplier is. But I think it's important to tackle those data limitations. And I think what it starts to really highlight the importance of at the beginning of the journey for anybody who starts tackling this topic is that the very start of your supply chain engagement journey has to be to get the data right in the first place. Because 
that data is a, a source of collaboration, you can often improve it together. It's important for everyone involved. Um, if it's incorrect, you're going to start making the wrong decisions as you work through the journey. You, you often need to use influence to make improvements over time. You need to be able to set standards to um, organizations in the supply chain to say, look, okay, I appreciate you don't collect this now, but you're going to need to collect it. Here's the standard of what we're expecting. And can you make sure that you provide us that data by X date and then every interval thereafter. So it's quite important to acknowledge that part of the pathway to net zero is this is going to take time and, and that you start building plans now that allow you to deliver those things. And I think that's why many organizations are not setting particularly fast supply chain reduction goals. Um, and you'll often find that there's a difference in the dates between people's operational carbon deadlines and their, and their value chain or, or supply chain ones, because uh, I think there's an acknowledgement that there's there's quite a bit of background work that needs to be done in that aspect first. Yeah, there's still, in my work, I see a lot of companies that have set or even achieved operational um, net zero goals already. Uh, but then they're, they're, when you take into account all of the scopes, um, they've still got targets for 2050. So there's obviously a massive gulf between the two. Yeah, and I think that represents not just probably where they're at, but where the industry's at at large. I think the reality is that the next decade, particularly, defines a lot of how successful we'll be behind this. We need to collectively set a whole series of standards, define a set of methodologies, create a set of data sets, and then make sure that we innovate and share them on scale in a way which is actually usable for the 8 billion um, and probably more by then uh, people on the planet. And I think that's part of the reason why this will be, uh, in terms of rising to you know, the, the net zero challenge in front of us all, it, it is arguably the largest, the greatest challenge to face humanity, which given what we're all currently going through is probably might sound like an overstatement, but I don't think it is. Well, I was just about to ask, uh, why, why do upstream emissions uh, matter so much if you know, they're, they're hard to control and companies can control their direct uh, or their scope one and two emissions much more easily. Uh, but you've just answered that by, uh, you know, I think which is an accurate prediction that the, the future of the planet depends on it. Um, but what can companies do if they're listening to this and they're thinking, you know, if it's if it's so difficult to tackle these upstream emissions, how can, how can I even begin? I think we always start with engagement you've got to start talking to a supply chain i think if you're talking specifically on the purchase goods and materials uh, and services side then you really got to start talking to your key suppliers you've got to start making this part of procurement processes you've got to start evaluating and setting up questionnaires data return um, maybe some kind of matrix that allows you to understand where you can have an influence or impact on start to understand the journey those organizations are also going on in relation to net zero because we've all got to do it so there's a lot of collaboration out there i also think part of that journey of engagement allows you to identify early opportunities there may just be an absolute low-hanging fruit opportunity sat in front of you about something like a circular economy project where what what's waste to one organization is a resource to the next there's a, a great pair of videos that have been circulating to various people recently but wwf I've got a pair of videos, Our Planet Too Big to Fail, which is about the finance side, and then Our Planet, Our Business, which is about the impact business can have. And um, in one of those videos, there's a, a very well said moment where um, there's no such thing as waste, it's just someone else's resource. And I think like it's, it's as you go down the journey of engagement, you actually start to realize that some of this is about um, identifying the opportunities that we can act on now in lieu of getting better at doing this. And I think when I mentioned last time in our previous podcast, the, the, the fundamentally there's just a real need for pragmatism throughout all of this. I think if you're 
Um, I think if you take too ideological a position or too rigid a position about the ability to estimate a certain point or work through something, or, or I think we won't tackle the challenges of net zero if we don't get our hands dirty, is the simplistic answer. So I think there's a certain attitude that's needed behind how you drive that forward. I think in terms of how you resolve the data, and once you've started that engagement, it really just becomes about planning. Um, I think for a lot of organizations that uh, purchase goods and materials as an example uh, and services as an example is is one where the planning is really required to start looking at that over time. But I think the same applies if you look at the other aspects. Many organizations will be able to tell you what their waste uh, activity is because there are statutory obligations around that for many people that mean the data is much better. But you start to get to weaknesses around business travel, employee commuting and, and the other activities that are in this um, upstream area. Um, and so it's just not to bang too much of a, of a drum on it, data, 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 um, in terms of the focus as to where it needs to be. If you, you, you've got to really look at that early on in all of this and make sure that you've got a handle on it because it will set the foundations of your future success. What do you think the future looks like in terms of the information that's um, going to be available in terms of the things that are being bought and sold? Is that going to change significantly? I think they've got a couple of really interesting and exciting things that will make a difference on different ways you look at this. So if we take that purchase goods and services for a moment, then there's two particular pieces there. One is there's a general trend of carbon labelling that is expanding over time, and that's in different ways so i think it was uh, chipotle the restaurant a couple of weeks ago um they've got an app that you can look at the carbon footprint of the different options on their menu and i think that kind of innovation is um is really great to see and you've obviously got the um kind of labeling that's been on crisp packets and t-shirts as i think I mentioned before and we we've done uh projects for people a uh, t-shirt and manufacturing process uh is, is an actual real one we've done a proper calculation for people to be able to put on a label uh, amongst others so there is a there is the ability to give the customer the insight on that but you've also got to be clear about what part of the journey that figure represents is it just to the customer is it the full life cycle so i think there's still an educational piece for society at large there uh, i think the other bit that's really interesting on the purchase goods and services side is what happens over time with the use of data linked to finance there's a really great opportunity using things like the open banking protocol over time to start influencing people's decisions based upon uh, linking carbon data to finance data. But I think there's some big risks at the moment because doing that on a domestic level, for example, you you might go and buy, uh, at the moment it would be done based upon certain sectors and, and it's quite very, very high level. And I'll give you an example of where that might show you a perverse result. If you were buying your food from a value-driven chain, you might find that the carbon footprint of that product is actually higher than, say, an organic material you bought elsewhere, but it's quite likely the, the organic one would be of a higher cost for the item so the carbon footprint that would be attached with the sector level data would actually be kind of almost arbitrarily higher even though that the actual real impact of the product you're buying so there's, there's there's limitations to this stuff if you try and if you try and believe the data is telling you more than it is so i think carbon labeling is really important for individuals um, and i think uh, for companies on a larger scale that finance data but i think if we can start to get some real innovation between the two that's great i think when you start looking at other aspects like business travel uh, and employee travel and that kind of thing, the, the travel industry has a lot of opportunity to present more information. Um, and the data is available, so it would be much easier for the trans for the carbon footprint of those sectors to be to be much more visible out there. Um, and certainly, there are some providers out there who will give you that visibility and, and will engage in that 
um, topic and share it. So I think the, the where the future goes is is about on the com- consumer side. I think is making that information available at the point of sale, so that be on, on a menu or be it on an app or be it on the back of a packet. How can people deal with the obvious impacts that aren't scope one and two? Because um, like with like such as water, waste, and business travel. Um, these areas it's not always as you say there it's there's no packet necessarily to look at the information on so i mean water is uh the easier one in general because it's kind of a resource efficiency topic like electricity and gases use less of it and it will make a big difference but water also has a relatively small carbon impact it arguably has a wider environmental one and that's a good argument to, to have but the uh, but from a carbon point of view, it, it's not. It doesn't certainly calculate as having a particularly significant one. When you start to get to waste and business travel, I mean, a lot of that is going to get get some good tracking data in place. But I think it becomes about how you can actually tackle those things using the data. I mean, one of the biggest things you can do with the waste side is increase your recycling rate because it has a material impact on your carbon footprint because the, the factors are different based upon whether you recycle or not. So um, if it goes to landfill, it's considerably more carbon. So I think in terms of people's approaches to those, it kind of becomes more activity driven. It's not a procurement process in the same way. You can't buy green water, um, if that makes sense. It's about your own conscious decisions in each case of those. It's about use less water, recycle more, and then the choices you make around business travel. Those are tangible actions that can be understood now rather than having to wait for the industry to evolve. Um, So those are actually in many places a really good place to start if you're trying to make tangible scope free reductions so th- those are steps that businesses can take um you know they, they have con- quite a deal of control over their water their waste and um the travel that their employees are going to be doing but what are the impacts of working from home uh during the pandemic and you know potentially into the future uh long term uh how does that affect corporate carbon footprints because you know that's that's something that maybe the the business has less direct control over because they they can't force the employees to do certain things can they to go green when they're working from home no i think that's a, a fair challenge particularly right now um i think the, the immediate impact is that you're going to have a huge transfer of either emissions leakage from um, which is kind of a technical term to say it disappears off the carbon footprint for, for some organizations because the working in the office carbon footprint would have been a scope one and two and it might not appear in the scope three unless the organization accounts for it you you should have in terms of the the guidance the employee commuting category um section seven of the scope three covers what's determined as employee teleworking but it's basically remote working the actual calculation methodologies are going to vary from organization to organization but i think the challenge in terms of the working from home setup is arguably and there are some um, good examples out there in terms of research on this and we're actually um have our own white paper on the topic there's a strong likelihood that the carbon footprint actually goes up because in an office space the the relative amount of space that people are occupying is smaller so there's less heating uh, that's on as a consequence of that person being in that space and uh, you may find that the overall efficiency of the of the equipment and so on is is better in an office space. They're set up to be 
um, optimized productive spaces. And that's not necessarily the same at home. And, and, and certainly if you're in a situation where you're now at home, where that home might have been unoccupied uh, during the day, otherwise, then the relative impact might be quite quite significant. National Grid released some data at the beginning of lockdown showing that demand from homes had gone up electrically by about 30%. But obviously the, the, the industrial and commercial demand have fallen. But in general, you, you've obviously got an increase in home energy use. In terms of how you account for that, there are different approaches that people are looking at summarizing them in general it's either just taking account of the usage of the computing equipment which is probably a bit of an under calculation of it uh calculation of the um computing equipment and the space in which those people are are in but then you start getting down to maybe too much data for each individual person i think starting to take responsibility for everybody's whole home emissions it starts to get to an interesting question but obviously if heating systems are on because your home you've got to draw the line as i said there's a white paper we've got on that so it might be worth referring to that for anybody who wants to go into any specific detail on the calculation approach because we've we've itemized that out there but i think in terms of uh, what businesses can do about it i think it it really poses a wider question um about the responsibility that we all have as employers to um, about the engagement side of things. I think I, I remember very clearly, kind of having been in the sector for um, 16 years, the, the days of when it was very focused on turning lights off, changed set points, and there wasn't much more to what we generically refer to as behavior change. I think there is an increasing acceptance that you're largely only going to create the cultural shifts that are required here by supporting people to change to adopt a more sustainable lifestyle and so what you are increasingly seeing is businesses start to engage with their teams about how to be a sustainable individual, which will include their sustainability behaviours at work, rather than just tackling individual behavioural activities. And in part of that, I think it is fair to talk to people about how they, that they manage their carbon footprint at home. What you can't do, because there is the boundaries between an employer and, and, the, and, and the employee's own space, is, 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 is mandate those. I think it's a great example of where this is about engagement and collaboration, not mandates and rules and policies. You can set those on your scope one and two emissions easily. You can set some of them on your scope three. But I think starting to tell the employee how to run their own home is probably a line that's crossed. And you, um, you th- it has to be really about the advocacy, advocating the, the, the right behaviours and actions that can um, really support the, um, uh, the reduction of carbon emissions at, at home. And then you need to give some consideration about how you might track that um, to make sure that any reductions actually present themselves in any methodology you might be following. Again, refer to the white paper that I discussed. Well, thank you very much, Simon. I think that's a, uh, a great time to wrap up this podcast, which of course has discussed the, uh, the upstream impacts. Uh, so please, everyone, do tune in to the next instalment in this series, which will be all about understanding the impacts downstream of you. Uh, So thank you very much, Simon, and thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks, Johnny. You have been listening to a promoted podcast from Future Net Zero. Thanks for listening to this Future Net Zero podcast. Please follow us on social media and subscribe to the website at www.futurenetzero.com. Future Net Zero. Better business, better planet.